Welcome to the podcast for Centerpoint Church. My name's Jason, and I'm honored that you'd spend some time with us today. We're on one of my favorite series of all time. It's called Obscure. And what we're going to be doing in this series is we're going to look at characters in the Bible that are often overlooked. And so I want us to be able to spend some time in God's Word and look at some portions of Scripture that maybe you've never heard of before. Maybe you've never heard a sermon on it before. Join us for this series called Obscure. Let's jump into the message. My name is Jason. I just want to welcome you here. If it's your first time, don't make it your last time. My prayer is that this is a place where you feel comfortable, where you feel needed, and most importantly, where you feel the presence of God. Whether you're far from him or close, I hope that you can feel the presence of God today. We're going to be on this new series kicking off today called Obscure. As long as you can read, you notice that it's called Obscure. Now, what does that mean and what are we doing? What we're going to be doing is over the next couple of weeks, we're going to be looking at a variety of stories, characters, individuals, and today a book of the Bible that's often overlooked. Obscure references, obscure people that I'm going to guess that most of them you've probably never heard of before or at least never heard preached on before. But this is totally my jam to find little small nuances in Scripture and apply them to our lives. And, and I'm just audacious enough to believe that every word was divinely inspired by the Holy Spirit without error. And if that's the case, then in the book of the Bible, there are no fillers. That everything is important and everything we can apply to our lives. So we're going to be today on the book of Jude. We're going to be on Jude if you're a note taker. I love seeing some of you take notes. It's really easy to find if you have an old school Bible. Some of you are just a drop down menu. But if you have an old school Bible, which is a Bible, it's crazy to think that's old school. But I'm glad for whatever you have. Go to Revelation and just go a little bit over to your left and you'll find Jude. It's just at the very, very end of that. And we're going to be covering the entire book today. Now, before you start panicking, you're, you, we're going to get out of here in a short amount of time. You're still going to beat the Pentecostals to lunch. But because Jude is only one chapter, it's 25 verses. And we're going to be covering most of it today. Now, what's interesting about the book of Jude is it's written by a brother of Jesus. Now, we actually say it's a half-brother of Jesus because it's uh, Jesus' biological father is not Joseph. But for Jude, it is the biological child of Joseph and Mary. And, and for some people, I remember pretty early, pretty later on, I was like, I didn't even know Jesus had brothers. He did have brothers. He also had sisters, and I'm going to show you. It's hidden right there in plain sight in Mark's gospel. So just, it's just one verse. We'll cut to it real quick. Verse 6-3, this is when they're, they're kind of angry at Jesus, the crowd, and they say, isn't this the carpenter? Isn't this Mary's son and the brother of James, Joseph, Judas, and Simon? And then it says, aren't his sisters here with us? And they took offense at him. But what we see is he has four brothers and he has two sisters. He may have more than two. We don't know. But the indication of scripture is that it's at least two because it's plural. So it's a big family. And, and then you're looking through here and you're like, James, I've heard that before. This is James who wrote the book of James. And then you're like, but I don't see Jude anywhere on that. You do. It's Judas. So Jude is a nickname for Judas, kind of like uh, Billy and William or Bobby and Robert. And, and there's a, a variety of reasons why he may go by Jude. If I had to guess, we don't have really a whole lot of indication in scripture, but if I had to guess, it's probably because by now the name Judas Iscariot was probably pretty popular. And he's probably like, hey, I'm Judas, but I'm not 
that Judas. Like, I'm not that guy. And then maybe the other thing is, is just to differentiate himself. But, but even an atheist cannot argue that historically that there was a person named Jesus from Nazareth and that we do have his at least six siblings. And, and so I think that even any details that we can have in scripture sometimes is there just for historical authenticity and there's value in that. And Judas had to grow up just like his brother James with Jesus as their brother. <laughs> now, I, I want you to think for a moment what it would be like if God told you that your brother, if you have one, was the son of God. Now, I have a brother, and I would have a hard time believing that as well. Because my brother is a mouth breather. But, I just be serious now. Come on now, I'm just kidding around. Has anybody ever met my brother? Yeah, absolutely. But neither of them believed that Jesus was the son of God until after his death, burial, resurrection. They see him walking around for 40 days after they heard about him on the cross, and then he ascends to heaven. And at that point, they're like, okay, fine. I guess it is. Like, Do any of you have a brother or a sister that was like the golden child growing up? If the answer is no, you're probably the golden child. Uh, but did you have one that like... Like for you, like a C plus B minus is pretty good. And they would be like, why can't you be like your, they got A's. Oh, you know, hey, you scored six points in the basketball game. Great job. You did awesome. And then like the kids at school are like, well, she's not as good as her sister was because she scored 20. Have any of you ever faced anything like that? Imagine, <laughs> I think about what would it be like with Jesus growing up. Now he, you know, he was without sin, but he was still a kid and a teenager. And like, what would it be like during that time when like Jesus's room was probably always clean? Like he probably made his bed like military style. And, and what would happen if they were traveling and there was, you know, a little stream they had to get through? What would, would Jesus be able to part it? No. You get it. So I started thinking this week about what are the different brothers in history that were pretty talented in their own right, but they got overshadowed by their much more famous older brother. And, and the first one I thought of, now hold on a second, I'm going to put their picture up on the screen, but I just want to tell you something. I, I'm one of those old people that like still Google images and I have no other way of knowing how to download images. Like I'm just an analog boy in a digital world. So I sent them on this new LED screen that's bought and paid for by y'all. Thank you. Uh, I, and you're going to see it's very pixelated. So it's not their fault. It's not the screen's fault. It's my fault. I was born in the eighties. Come on now. But but I want you to see this. So the first one is a guy by the name of Frank Stallone. All right. Now you probably never heard of Frank Stallone. And if you have, you know him as Sylvester's brother, right? The other brother, talented actor, but he ain't Sylvester. Let's be serious now. I feel bad for Frank Stallone. Here's another one. Roger Clinton, brother of Bill Clinton. Funny enough, Jeremy says he knows Roger Clinton. Now, both of them have made terrible decisions, <laughs> but... But he ain't Bill. He wasn't the governor of Arkansas. He wasn't president of the United States, a two-time reigning president. He, no, no. He's Bill Clinton's brother. And then the last one, I could have done this, you know, we could have done this all day, but you, you want to get out of here, is another brother who was pretty good, but he'll never be as good as his older brother. That's Eli and Peyton Manning. Let's be serious now. Ole Miss versus UT? I don't even think so. Not even close. But, and hashtag DirecTV, I told you. I, 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 <laughs> Forgive me. 
I'm not sponsored by DirecTV. I don't even have DirecTV. So you people under the age of 25 don't even know what that means. But let's, let's move on. Take that down, please. So we're going to be in the book of Jude. 25 verses. Starts off with Jude chapter 1 because it's the only chapter. So verse 1 and 2. I want you to hear the intro because I believe the book of Jude in 25 verses, it covers lots of different things. And I think that you're going to walk away with some deep theological truths of God, how he views you, and how your life should change in just 25 verses. And we're going to cover all kinds of good stuff. we got historical things. We've got demonology here. We're going to talk about different types of demons all in one little book. Here we go. Verse 1. Jude, a servant of Jesus Christ and a brother of James, to those who have been called, who are loved in God the Father and kept for Jesus Christ, mercy, peace, and love be yours in abundance. Pretty standard verse true to intro. The first part is very interesting, though, because if you'll notice, he doesn't say anything about being the brother to Jesus. He says he's a brother of James. Now, I don't know about you, but if I was the brother of Jesus and I was trying to write a document that I wanted you to think was important, I would have name dropped right there. I'd have been like, bro, I'm the brother of Jesus. Like, I want you to take yourself back 20, 30, 40 years for some of you when you back when you used to go to clubs, like nightclub, nightclubs, like Studio 54, nightclubs. Is that what the studio was? Was it 54? And if you said yes and you know that, altar call. That's my worship director too. <laughs> but I want you to imagine that you get to the club and you walk up with that long line and there's that big bouncer with like the clipboard and your name's on the list and you're like, oh no, no, no. It's Jason, brother of Jesus. Yeah, and oh, yep, you may get through. Like he doesn't even name drop right there. But the most interesting part of verse one is this word servant. So we see diakonos a lot of times used in, for servant in, in Greek. It's where we get the word deacon from. It's like, I'm here to serve. I'm willing to serve. It's going to be for a while, and it's here for a purpose. But he doesn't use that. He uses the word doulos, which just shows that it's an indentured servant, meaning that you are sold into slavery for a lifetime. So he's saying right here, Jesus Christ is the Son of God, and for the rest of my life, I am a slave to the gospel. Powerful. Sometimes English doesn't really do it justice, but you see the difference. So right off the bat, Jude is saying something pretty significant. There's two major themes in the book of Jude. I want you to leave with an understanding of both of these. And I think that both of these themes are so pertinent to today's society in the church setting. And the first one is false teachers. You'll see a lot in the New Testament that the letters of Paul and various other men almost always mention something about correcting false teachers. We've got churches in this town that today the preachers are going to be standing on stage that I genuinely believe are false teachers. We're going to talk about how you can recognize that, and that's what Jude is trying to tell you. And then the other theme is to encourage you to fight for your faith. To fight for your faith. Not to sit in a rocking chair on the spiritual front porch until you get to heaven, but to fight for it. And he's going to tell us why we got to fight for it, how to fight for it, and what makes it worth it. I hope you're excited. I'm excited. Let's go to verse 3. Dear friends, although I was very eager to write to you about the salvation we share, I felt compelled, write the underline that word, compelled to write and urge you to contend for the faith that was once entrusted to God's holy people. Pause it right there. What he's saying right here is I was going to write you just to encourage you. 
That was the main purpose. But then I've started hearing of something different. I felt compelled that at first I needed a shift and we needed to talk about these false teachers first. So he's saying, I had one plan, but based upon circumstances, we're going to call an audible for the first half. And I'm going to tell you to contend for your faith, to fight for your faith, to be aware of the things that are going to try to pull you away from following God. Verse four, for certain individuals whose condemnation was written about long ago have secretly slipped in among you. They are ungodly people who pervert the grace of our God into a license for immorality and deny Jesus Christ, our only sovereign and Lord. Did you hear that? He's saying, the reason I got to write this is because some false teachers have secretly slipped in. Say that five times fast. Secretly slipped in amongst you. Here's the danger, church, of false teachers. They don't present themselves as false teachers. It'd be nice if you went to a church and you were trying it out and all of a sudden the preacher gets up on stage and he goes, I'm a false teacher. Because then you would be like, I recognize that. Nope, not interested in that. None of you are interested in following someone who's presenting you what Jude calls a perverted gospel. So how do we know? James, much like Paul, takes false teachers and false doctrine way more serious than the average Christian does. We just accept it. Okay, fine, let them be them. What kind of letter would Paul write? It'd be called First and Second Hendersonville. <laughs> and what would he say to you? What would he say to us? Let the words of Jude echo in your soul. Contend for your faith. Fight for your faith. Not fight for your political party. Fight for your faith. And then he says that these people are ungodly people. Then he says that they use the grace of God as a license for their own immorality. That should be the next James Bond movie. Licensed for immorality. No, be serious now. <laughs> but he says that. They pervert the gospel so that they can justify their own perversion and immorality. Do you see that happening in the church today? I want you to, to see, I'm going to skip ahead for just one verse for just a second, verse 13. And I want you to hear how Jude describes these false teachers. And this is strong language. Not strong language like some of you use on the weekend in traffic. But I mean like just strong language. Verse 13. Though some of you didn't laugh. Verse 13. They are wild waves of the sea foaming up their shame, wandering stars for whom the blackest darkness has been reserved forever. That's strong language. You see Paul, you see Jude, you see Peter, you see Jesus, you see all of these people in the New Testament that are confronting false doctrine. Why don't we confront false doctrine? is twofold. So one, we don't recognize often that it's false doctrine. So we don't know it well enough. 
I think the second one is, is that we have convinced ourselves that love means being a jellyfish and not having a backbone. The world isn't attracted to people who cater and give in to the culture of society. Why would they do that? It's like, hey, come in here to the church. We compromise on everything. We just ask for 10% of your money. How do we know when a teacher is false? How do you know that I'm not a false teacher? You don't. Really? But you can. Here's how. I read this book recently, and I get no kickback from it. Uh, you can get it on Amazon. Now, you can get my book on Amazon, and I do get a kickback for that, but this isn't it. Beautiful Resistance by John Tyson. If you're looking for something to read, my goodness. Th this book right here, he actually talks about something that I remember back in my AP history class uh, called the ultimate recognition. Ultimate recognition. And it's what exists in U.S. politics today. And it's brilliant. It's this idea that when the legislative branch, legislative branch writes laws, whether it's at the state level or the federal level, they write laws, and before they even send it to the House to get voted on, before they even pass it as a written law, they use what's called ultimate recognition. They look at it and they compare it to the Constitution. And if there's anything there that conflicts with the Constitution, they throw it out before it even gets to the vote, before they even bother talking about it and spending the time with it. They, they look at it. Does this line up with the Constitution? If it does not, dismiss it right away. Let's move on to something else. And, and what he says in this book is this idea that the ultimate recognition for you and I is the Word of God. So anytime you hear anything, whether it's on TikTok or whether it's in person that's telling you who God is, what God's word says, and what morality is and what it isn't, use ultimate recognition and compare it to the scriptures. And if it does not, if it conflicts with the holy word of God, throw it out right away. But we got to be in the word of God to compare it to it. During my time as a youth pastor, I, I remember middle school students coming up to me and telling me stuff that they did. And I won't get into the details of it, but it was clearly against scripture. And I remember in particular one girl saying, yeah, but it's okay because the Bible says that I can do this. And I thought, you, no. Bro, not even the Quran says you can do that. What are you talking about? But she didn't know. Somebody told her. I feel like those are the people that are going to show up and he's going to say, depart from me for I never knew you. There's an element there that they will be surprised to hear that, that will be shocking news to them. So our ultimate recognition has to be the word of God. When I'm preaching to you, I implore you, compare what I'm saying to the word of God to see if it's truth. Because I am just a human. If you have relatives that go to a different church, ask them, line up with what you're hearing with the word of God and see if it's the truth. If it's not, run. Run. What we see now in verses uh, five through seven is Jude is going to show us three different people in scripture that started off in truth and allowed corruption to come in and end them in a lie. And I want some of you to hear this. We're going to circle back to it at the end of our message today. But here's what I want you to hear. It doesn't matter where you start. It matters where you finish. 
I feel like if there's the, the two things to sum up the book of Jude is beware of false teachers and finish well. Finish well. So what Jude is going to do, he's going to take us through three different examples of people in the Old Testament who started great, finished poorly. Have any of you ever followed a sports team that started great? But they didn't know how to close it out. Zach, I should hear you say amen. You're a Cowboys fan. Every season, this is our year, bro. We're starting out great. And don't bother. I know the Niners got their butt kicked last week. You didn't pray enough for me. Don't bother. He's going to give us three different examples. I want you to hear this. Verse 5, he says, Though you already know this, I want to remind you that the Lord at one time delivered his people out of Egypt, but later destroyed those who did not believe. There's one. Two. And the angels who did not keep their position of authority, but abandoned their proper dwelling, these he has kept in darkness, bound with everlasting chains for judgment on that great day. We're going to come back to that. So the angels in heaven, they got seduced and tricked and lost their position of authority and followed Beelzebub. And then the last one, in a similar way, Sodom and Gomorrah and the surrounding towns gave themselves up to sexual immorality and perversion. They serve as an example for those who suffer punishment of eternal fire. Three different ones. Started out great. Look at the Israelites. Man, they left slavery in Egypt. Like God's like, I'm going to direct you. I'm going to feed you. You don't even have to have a job. I'm going to show you, man. This is like GPS times a thousand. Like, I'm going to show you what way to go. I'm going to feed you for free. I got you out of there. Let's go do this together. And they're like, yes, let's go. And, and, and they, they thought that this was the finish line when they still had a whole lot more to do. And so what we see them is, is they use the finish line, the starting line as their finish line. How many people in the church today get saved? They think that this is the finish lines, man. So you get saved and then what do you do? I'm just going to sit here and wait till I get to heaven. And God's like, if you are breathing, you have a purpose and we've got work to do. You're not even close, man. Can you imagine if your kid graduated high school, got their diploma, and they're like, man, that was a tough 18 years. I'm done. They're like, bro, no, you got to move out sometime. You, we, you, you're gonna, you got a lot to do. I'm kicking you off my insurance at 25. Come on, man, get going. But now nah, I, I got my diploma. I'm done. And then and, and what I see is time after time after time, people who enter salvation, they say words, but they don't have a changing of their heart. And I believe they will hear, depart from me. I never knew you because they believed the lie that this was the finish line. And, and even if it's not a salvation issue, let's concede then that at least it's an inheritance issue. And that we have created a culture of consumer consumerism in Christianity rather than workers. We got work to do. 
If you got a family member, if you got a neighbor that not that does not know the Lord yet, don't sit down. See, the Israelites started out great. And then God said, because you complained, because you didn't trust, because that you were stiff-necked, I can't even bring you into the promised land. Instead, I'm going to have to bring your kids. And I can't even bring the leader. So we got to raise up Joshua. The second group that he's talking about is the fallen angels. Now here's what's interesting. If the spiritual warfare world interests you, lean in. This is, this is some free stuff right here. It's called eschatology, study of end times. I'm giving to this to you for free. As it says right here, a particular type of angel or that was a demon, but these aren't the demons that are floating around right now. Look, it says in verse six, and the angels who did not keep their positions of authority, but abandon their proper dwelling, he has kept in darkness, bound with everlasting chains for judgment on that great day. So these are not the demons that, that float around here. These are ones that even God was like, dude, I can't let, I doubt God says dude, but maybe he's from California. I, I, I can't allow these demons to even be out right now. They are so evil and so powerful and so vicious that I have to hold these in place. And, and, and what's interesting about it is we read in Revelation that during the tribulation, God actually unchains those demons for a very short period of time and they start killing everybody because these are the ones that are bad. Like we see in, 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 in the study of angels that there's an archangel and we see different levels of authority of angels and the demons are the same way. The devil's created the counterfeit. And so these angels started off in heaven in the presence of God. And then they got seduced by pride and by a false teacher named Beelzebub. I didn't finish well. Even more interesting, if you read in Luke chapter 8, when Jesus encounters, the, they call him the demoniac, which is kind of a cool name, but it's the, the, the person that has all the demons in them. And he says, what's your name? And say, we are, we are legion, for we are many. Now, just a side note, a Roman army, a legion of soldiers was 6,000 6, soldiers. Does that mean there's 6,000 demons in him? Maybe. <laughs> but the bad part about demons is they lie. So you can't really trust any. There could have been two, could have been one, who knows? But, but if you'll notice when Jesus exercises them and gets them out of him, they're begging. Go back and read it. They say, please do not send us into the abyss. They're talking about that darkest part of hell because even they don't want to go down where those demons are. Oh, that's some heavy stuff right there. And then the last one, Example he gives us is Sodom and Gomorrah. It's where we get the word sodomy from. It's people who started off with Lot living with them, or close by anyway. And they had all this teaching that they knew, and they started off with God, and then in time they gave into their sexual perversion, and God destroyed it. How many people you know are like, hey, where are you going on your family vacation this year? Oh, I don't know. We're thinking about Hawaii, thinking about maybe New York City, thinking about going to Sodom and Gomorrah. I don't know. You can't find it. It's wiped out. They don't even know. They think, eh, it's probably right around here. And they've said that they found an excess of salt in this area. So if you know anything about Lot's wife, that's where they think that it probably was. But I, that sounds sketchy at best to me. 
but God takes it serious. So what does that have to do with you and I? What it has to do with you and I is we all start at different places. Some of you are the first person saved in your entire family tree. Some of you are in your 50s, 60s, and 70s, and you yet have, have not done anything for the Lord. Some of you, you, you've been pretty terrible of a person your whole life, man. Like, you've done a lot of bad things. You started very poorly. But what Jude is saying is it's not where you start. How are you going to finish? How are you going to finish? Because if you're breathing, we still have the opportunity to finish well, to fight for it. How many of you are still on track for your New Year's resolution? You don't have to raise your hand. I know it's not many of you. You know how I know? Because we're in February, bro. I've already failed mine like three times. I'm like one of those Christians that gets baptized once a year. Like, <laughs> I start a New Year's resolution in January, February, March. Imagine if this was January. Hey, real talk. I've already had Taco Bell twice this week. <laughs> Hallelujah. <laughs> Imagine, though. I'm asking that's for real. Shame. Condemnation is not of the Lord, nor of you, okay? But imagine this is January. You're like, bro, this is my New Year's resolution. I'm going to drop 15 pounds. I'm going to shed this winter weight because it's almost bathing suit season. And I'm going to go when it's January. It's February. Nope, can't do it. That's what this looks like spiritually, but way worse. Here, here's what I want some of you to hear. The word of God says that his calling is irrevocable. One translation says it's under full warranty. You know what that means? Sin is not powerful enough to stop the blood of Jesus from paying for your sins and keeping your purpose. You are not powerful enough to completely ruin your life to the point where God can't use you anymore. You're not. It's not where you start. It's how you finish. Verses 8 through 16 then address spiritual warfare and examples of false teachers in the Old Testament. I'm going to skip that for the sake of our time, but I encourage you this week, there is, I, I just love the Word of God. I mean, I, I'm, I've tried, I'm trying to keep this short. In verses 8 through 16, go back and study this. It's a sermon on itself. Jude throws in this one little thing, and he talks about that the archangel Michael, only time that we see that Michael's an archangel, uh, the archangel Michael and the devil are fighting over the body of Moses. Fascinating part of scripture, and it's hidden right there under your noses. Read it, study it this week, and then come back and tell me what it means. Okay, let's move on. <laughs> let's move on to verse 17. Now we are pivoting, Heather, to the second part of this book, which is a call to persevere, which is a call to fight for your faith. And he's going to tell us what our job is as men and women of God, of daughters and sons. What is our role and how do we do it? It's going to be a path for us. Verse 17, but dear friends, remember what the apostles of the Lord Jesus Christ foretold. They said to you in the last times, there will be scoffers who will follow their own ungodly 
really desires. These are the people who divide you, who follow mere natural instincts and do not have the spirit. But you, dear friends, by building yourselves up in the most holy faith and praying in the Holy Spirit, how do you do it? Build yourselves up with faith and with the power of the Holy Spirit. Some of you King James call it the Holy Ghost. Verse 21, keep yourselves in God's love. Man, that phrase right there should change some of your theology. Keep yourself in God's love as you wait for the mercy of our Lord Jesus Christ to bring you eternal life. Verse 22, be merciful to those who doubt. That's a little bit different of fighting. Save others by snatching them from the fire. To others, show mercy mixed with fear, hating even the clothing stained by corrupted flesh. What he's saying right here is, is we got to build it up. A diet is not easy. But why do we do it? Because we believe that the payoff is worth it. Let me ask you this. In this church, in the first service, it was a lot. But in this church, we have several of you who are first responders, veterans, or active military. If that's you, stand up for just a moment so we can honor you, first of all. Come on, stand up. Come on. Amen. I honor you, men and women. I honor you. Man, I've got family in, in my family tree, both alive and with the Lord who have served. Utmost respect. Thank you. But let me ask you a question. Jeff, Jeremy, why would you do it? Like, why would you give up comfort, put your life on the line, risk it for complete strangers that will never really probably appreciate what you've gone through and the long-term effect it's had on your life. Doesn't pay that great. You miss holidays. Why would you do that? On paper, it makes no sense. There's easier ways to make a living. Why do you do it? Because it's worth it. Because it's worth it. And though those people may never appreciate civilians, the, the price that you paid, you're not doing it for them. You're doing it for the greater good. You're doing it for religious freedom. You're doing it for the greatest nation I believe this world has ever seen. In the United States of America, you're not doing it because it's easy. You're doing it because it is worth it. Lean into this now. We don't follow this path of Christianity because it is easy, because it makes sense on paper. We do it because it's worth it. And Jesus never promised us it would be easy. In fact, the opposite, recorded in the tax collector's gospel, Matthew, he says, in this world you will have trouble, but take heart, for I have overcome the world. So what I'm asking of you, to fight for it, to build up your faith, to contend for your faith, to be the leader of your family, to raise godly children, to invest in people that will let you down time and time again. I'm not telling you it makes any sense on paper. Now, I'm not telling you that your life's going to be better for it. But I'm going to tell you that it's worth it. 
The Christian life is about being all in. He ends it by what's called the doxology, in which it's a praise. What a great way to end a book of the Bible, verses 24 and 25, is a praise. And what I want us to do is I'm going to read it, and I'm going to talk for a minute, and then we're going to end service by standing up. It'll be up on the screen, and we're going to say it all together in corporate unity, believing it because it ends it with a praise of God. Do you want to know why it ends with a praise of God? I don't know. I'll ask Jude when I get to heaven one day, but I, th I think I can, I can make a guess. Because I think that while he's writing this letter, he's telling them, you've got to fight false teachers. You've got to defend your faith. You've got to fight for it. You've got to just keep working, keep building up strength. Because some of you are, have been believers for 40 years, but you have the strength of a spiritual toddler. Why? Because you stopped putting in the work. And I think that what, what he, we run the risk of when we hear this stuff is we start thinking, I can't do it. I'm, I'm, I've messed up. I'm not powerful enough. I don't have the books of the Bible memorized. I don't know how to pronounce these king's names in the Old Testament. I've done this. I've done that. And I think he wants to end it with the praise of God so that we can shift our focus because God isn't going to ask you to do something and then just leave you to do it on your own strength. I think that we have to shift our focus to who he is and that's why we can do it because have you ever heard somebody say, I've just let God down over and over again? Oh, darling, you were never holding him up to begin with. Shift your focus. And I want you to hear this, verse 24 and 25. To him who is able to keep you from stumbling and to present you before his glorious presence, talking about at the very end, he's going to present us in front of God, covered by his blood, talking about Jesus, without fault and with great joy. To the only God, our Savior, our Savior's corporate, be the glory, majesty, power, and authority through Jesus Christ, our Lord, before all ages, now and forevermore. And he is with amen. This finish line is not when you hit retirement. It's not when you start drawing Social Security. Thank goodness, because I have zero trust that Social Security is going to exist by the time I'm that age to get it. But that's a whole nother story. This finish line isn't once you're on staff at a church <laughs> or once you've told one person about God, once you've led one person to Christ, once you've prayed once, once you've tithed consistently. That's not the finish line. None of this. The finish line is when you hear, well done, thou good and faithful servant, enter now into the joy of the Lord. And he says, rest now. That's your finish line. But some of us have settled for a finish line long before God is done with us. And some of you, you think to yourself, yeah, but you don't know, I've wasted years following my own desires. I've messed up. I've been divorced. I've cheated. I've lied. I've stealed. I've done all these things. You don't know. I don't know. But I do know that it's not how you start. It's how you finish. And the story of the Bible is a story full of the redemption of broken people. People will associate more with your failures 
than they will your successes. Why? Because we've all dealt with failure. And when you have somebody that says, man, I've been there before. Let me tell you what God did for me. Somebody in this room needs to hear, finish well. Fight for it. Fight for your faith. Fight for your children. Don't just shrug and say, oh, well, they'll never come back. Oh, well, nothing I can do about it. Oh, well, we've got to raise kids in this environment that's never going to tell. Oh, well, oh, well. I think God's looking for people that will be in the Lord's army. Not a bunch of casual civilians that are just going to sit down and say, I've done my time. Let me tell you how I, this is the last thing, how I want to get to heaven. I want to get to heaven that the moment that I cross the line, I'm like those marathon runners that just collapse, which is probably how I would do it anyways. But spiritually, this is how. I don't want to get to heaven and be like, dude, I rested for the last 25 years. Oh man, I've got energy. I'm good, man. Let's go party. Where are we at? No, 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 no. What I want and what I want for you is to get here. And the moment I cross the line, I fall exhausted because I spend every breath, every day, every bit of energy I can muster up declaring how good God is so that I can bring people with me. And when I cross the line, he can say, enter now and rest. Job well done. Because we all think we're going to die at 100 years old. 120, Gerald. We do, though, in our mind, we're all going to die gray-haired, 100, in a hospital, in our sleep, where our grandchildren sing, uh, Mighty Fortress is our God. But the reality is someone dies every second, and I don't want to die in three days and know that my last three days on earth, I spent taking it easy. Why do I preach like I'm a madman and a crazy person? One person says I yell a lot. Why? Why? Because in case this is my last sermon, I want God to know I've put everything out here. And I've tried everything to tell people how good God is and how much he wants for your life. And I don't ever want to just take a sermon that's just a flyer and a filler to get through this Sunday. No, no. Every day, this is the day that the Lord has made. Would you stand with me, church? If you don't feel comfortable, just stand. No one will know. But if you do feel comfortable, I'm going to encourage you as a body of believers, let's have unity and declare this scripture over this place, over your life, over your situation. And then we're going to end it with singing, I'm going to see a victory again. Do you believe it? Do you believe it? Let's say this together, verse 24 and 25. To him who is able to keep you from stumbling and to present you before his glorious presence without fault and with great joy to the only God our Savior be glory, majesty, power, and authority through Jesus Christ before all, sorry, our Lord, you're a better reader than I am, before all ages, now and forevermore. Amen.